I vow to avoid killing living beings. I vow to avoid taking what is not given. I vow to avoid sensual misconduct. I vow to avoid false speech. I vow to avoid malicious speech. I vow to avoid harsh speech. I vow to avoid gossip. I vow to avoid covetousness. I vow to avoid ill will. I vow to avoid wrong view. Excellent. Excellent, excellent. You know, we can take these vows until the cows come home, but unless we um, put them into practice, then we are not uh, cultivating. And so I thought I would uh, talk to you today about uh, the, uh, the treatise Distinguishing Consciousness and Wisdom. I listened to um, some of the talks while I was away. And what I discovered was that um, while uh, the questions that came after the Dharma talk uh, were answered in the Dharma talk. So either we didn't understand the talk or um, didn't like what you heard. And the uh, discriminating mind that is based on habitual appearances kept arguing for its current view. That's the yeah but syndrome. Or that I just can't wrap my head around anything other than the way I see it. And no one can convince us to do that. The Buddha said all dharmas are mind made. Do we know the meaning of this? Mm. And so this passage has, means a lot of different things, but in a very simple sense, it means that every single phenomena that we recognize um, and that we name or that we categorize is uh, done so through a personal assessment. So in the final analysis, no one can from their own mind determine what is true for us individually. So on one hand, this is a great freedom, you know. Uh, I don't have to understand it the way you say it. I don't have to accept it the way you say it. I don't have to see it the way you say it, and vice versa. But on the other hand, it offers a challenge for, uh, um, or it offers us a great uh, opportunity to respond to things. Thoughts govern every situation in life because they precede all of our words and all of our actions. Even when we thought, think we've done something and we say, oh, I didn't think. Actually, you did. But the thinking was so fast that you didn't recognize the, that there is an impulse that precedes uh, all of our words and all of our actions. That's why they say don't drink because a drunk will tell you what they really think, you know, where other times they may not say it. The inhibition is gone and they just, so, um, you know, I used to drink a lot. And I can tell you for a fact, it wasn't that I lost my mind in the drinking. Actually, I was very much aware of it and uninhibited and you, you got a good dose of it. If you think that I, I really speak my, uh, my truth now, then you should have seen me once I had a drink in me. Um, and so these thoughts govern everything. Uh, so we easily question 
the views of others, right? That's natural because we have our own perspective based on something, and I'm going to help clarify what those some things could, could be according to uh, Buddhist uh, view. But perhaps we could spend an equal amount of time questioning our own thoughts as opposed to the thoughts of others. Buddhist, Buddhist simply meaning one's bent on awaking up, should be all about this, right? Endeavoring to actually live the truths that we, I'm sorry, I won't touch it again, the truths that we espouse. Uh, it's complicated and it's not easy, but there's a deep delight that comes about in realizing the great shift and the resultant visible manifestations that, that occur, and they occur step by step. Actually, the Buddha said one has to actually be an arhat before they have uprooted the conceit I. But we expect somebody to come in and in three months uproot it. It's not possible. So we put uh, unreasonable expectations upon people. And we put unreasonable expectations upon ourselves. And that's because we do want to see these things, and we want these things, and we want them now. And so we just bypass the, the patience uh, that it takes to cultivate these qualities, and we uh, substitute it for expectations. And so we never find our way out of this hole. So my question is, when you have the liberty to think anything you choose, what will you choose to think? That is going to determine your actions. So 15 minutes, 30 minutes. Forget one hour, 15 minutes, 30 minutes is all we ask that you offer to yourself, to relate to yourself every day. Because if we don't do this, we and everyone in our life are going to suffer. And we have to realize that we are harming people by making excuses for not working on ourselves. This is serious. We're too busy. We're too busy being busy. We're too busy with our planning. We have a life that's a reflection of our planning. It's been constructed out of bits and pieces of our environment, our external conditioning, things that we have observed in other people, things that uh, influential people have told us. Uh, but none of this is actually what makes life meaningful in the final analysis. That pre-planned life is lifeless and it's rigid. It's unresponsive and it doesn't really reflect the life that we were born to live, that we have the capacity to live because the Buddha nature, the nature to wake up is within us. So some of the questions that I heard uh, on the tapes uh, while I was away, I'd like to try to address it, not in the sense of an answer for a question, but in the sense of a dharma that you can ponder. And what I'm asking you to do is to really hear 
if you could suspend for a minute what you already know. When the yeah but pops up. I remember my daughter uh, painted, uh, drew some uh, flowers and colored them one day. And she gave me the picture. And it was so beautiful, the picture. I said, but honey, uh, it was flowers and trees. I said, but honey, leaves, uh, leaves aren't blue. And then a friend of mine uh, took me to Pennsylvania. He had to go and research. Um, he was a geologist, and he, there was some kind of problem up there with the water and something, and he took me uh, with him. And guess what I saw? I saw blue leaves. And when I got back, I bought her one of them. And I said, Mommy was mistaken. She was wrong. She'd never seen one, so she thought they didn't exist. Yeah. And I gave her that blue leaf, and she pressed it in a book, and she kept it for a very, very long time. And so sometimes when, you know, like when you get teenage years, and you think you know something, you know, and I'm trying to tell her as a mother, like, how, how it is and how it's going to be. She just, <laughs> she waved a blue leaf and toss her hair and, and go on. Uh, so I'm asking you today if you can just listen intently, just trying to unpack uh, the opening to this um, treatise. And I'm not going to be through with it today. I'm not even going to try. Um, but it will be online. So they'll be labeled um, part one, part two, part three, however long it takes to get through it. But I, I, I apologize if we've not made it clear. And if we've not, if we've tried to cram too much in, that you didn't have a chance to work with it bit by bit. So I'd like to start over with this. Now I'm going to dismantle, forget everything about egolessness, because that's just the concept. Uh, it's like uh, looking at water and thinking that you can taste it and that it will satisfy your thirst. You have to actually drink the water. And with egolessness, you have to actually encounter and abide in that space to know what it is. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. And I want to share today, if I think I can get through, the uh, preliminaries, which will be the eight consciousnesses. The Buddha said to know the Dharma is to know yourself. To know yourself, then, is to forget the self. To forget the self is to know the 10,000 things. So we think of consciousness and the difficulty we have uh, with our conceptualizing mind and being asked to suspend that is because it's everything we think we know. So let's really unpack what we already think uh, that we know. 
In Buddhist uh, teaching, there are five sensory consciousnesses, right? And what would those be? Just call it out. I'm, I know. And, and thinking, right? Okay. All right. So that's it. We got that part. Now, does the eye hear? Does the nose see? No. So the Buddha said it's really not one consciousness. There are those five. So you have eye consciousness, ear consciousness, you know, on like that. So we have these five consciousnesses. Can they be the same thing then? No. So the first thing he asks us to do is to start breaking it down in that way. And then we find like we multitask really because we see something and we and we hear something. <laughs> and we think we think something simultaneously. It's a little bit delayed because it has to do a relay system. So the sixth consciousness then would be the uh, mental consciousness, which engages with the perception of the five sensory uh, consciousnesses. So this mind consciousness has a different type or way of discriminating through thinking, things good or bad, large or small, um, goes on like this. And this is based on the memories that it holds. And it's based on other ways of uh, perceiving or calculating circumstance, both from what we've learned in this life and the rebirth-linking consciousness that emerged with our birth. So that's six. It could work sort of like this. The mental consciousness does not have the ability of direct perception. And the direct perceptions, those things that uh, come in through the sense gates, um, do not have the discriminating faculty. So when we see something, we just see it. It is the mental faculty that basically puts together and identifies for us what we see. Still with me? Okay, good. So if I look at these flowers, the mental consciousness does not perceive the visual image. But through ticking through my database, I learned the word flower. I saw pictures of flowers. So even if I see a strange flower I've never seen before, I could put that into the category of flowers by the way the mind calculates the bits of data that are stored 
in there. This is all very scientific, you know, for those who need it broken down this way. And it's what also allows me to look visually and I see this door. But the door takes on a different dimensional quality because there have been times I saw the other side of the door. There have been times I've seen the left or the right side of the door. Or if not that door, I've seen the top and bottom of the door. So when I look, I have formulated, although I'm only seeing this side of the door, I've formulated the whole idea of a door. Yeah? Okay. So we say that the mental consciousness is like, um, is like a blind person who can speak, he's able to describe things, but he's not able to perceive it directly. And the five sense gates then would be like one who can't uh, uh, describe what he's seen, but he can see it. And when these six come together, we have what we consider our individual experience. So he said one way that we might think or be able to ponder, you don't have to accept right now, but just to ponder the notion of these uh, six kinds of consciousnesses. He said that, um, if there was one monkey and he ran, he looked out that window, then he hopped over and looked out this window, then he looked out that window, then he looked out the door, then someone from the outside might think that there are six monkeys in the house, even though in fact there's only one. And this is to explain how uh, one consciousness could process information from five sensory and the mental consciousness, bringing about the six appearing as one. So the first bit of our practice, he says, is not to rely so fully on what we see or what we hear and then allow the mind to start its proliferation going into this database and creating, fabricating, filling in the gaps on what we think we have just heard or seen or know or is probably happening or whatever. And so he taught that there were six distinct consciousnesses, each with its own particular characteristics. So now I'd like to get to the seventh one, because this is where we, where it starts to get interesting. We've already beat out science by five. <laughs> okay. So the 
I want to say something else about the sixth consciousness. Um, is that it is as impermanent as all of the other consciousnesses. We see something and then we no longer see it. We hear something and then the words waft away. It is also that way that we think something and then the thought is gone. We have to keep thinking it to concretize a view. And so if one is trying to not be so attached to their views, then there has to be the practice of seeing the fleetingness of thought and seeing the continual pattern of relaying the thought to extend it to concretize it, of digging into the thought and looking for more of that, to give more color, more flavor, more, more timbre to the thought. And it's in this way that we create our reality and then we impute our reality upon others. The mental consciousness is also characterized by a quality of luminosity. And that just simply means um, that it can clearly put all this together and perceive an object like I know you're sitting right there in that chair. This is not an illusion. So when we talk about illusory appearances, you know, that's, that's uh, spiritual talk, meaning something else. But in plain old ordinary talk, <laughs> you're not illusion. We are all here. Okay. But the seventh and the eighth consciousnesses are not that vivid or that apparent. So we have to look deeply to recognize them. They're classed as being ever-present yet unclear, while the first Six consciousnesses are classified as temporary, but very vivid. We're sure we see something. I know what I heard. It's like that. The seventh consciousness is called the afflicted consciousness. And it functions basically as a clinging to a self. That's the seventh consciousness. It is continuously and latently present, clinging to a self, whether there is a hearing perception taking place, or a seeing perception, or tactile or feeling perception, even when one is asleep, there is this impression that I exist, that there is a self. So there are nine mental events that occur within this seventh consciousness. It envelops the five sensory. It includes 
the mental, and above those there is the clinging to self, the attachment to self, the pride in self, and the ignorance or the unknowing in relation to ourselves. That's why we feel confused sometimes. That's why we actually act totally contrary to what our intention is or what we want or what we need. It's why we feel motivated to actually go after on the opposite end what we want and what we need uh, for me and for mine. So there is this clinging to a self, attachment to a self, pride in a self, and ignorance in relationship to oneself. And these events uh, move. They have movement. That's why one moment I can feel ashamed, and the other next moment I can feel proud about something else, and another moment I can feel sad about something else, and another moment I'm rejoicing, I'm glad about something else. Because this consciousness moves. Not just with our perception of external things, but with our own kind of unknowing sense of ourself, that part of us that cannot actually be touched, that you cannot hang up and say, this is me, this is who I am. Yet, in some subtle way, there is this association with this impression of an individual being. Actually, that seventh consciousness is neutral, but it takes its cue from what? It takes its cue from the other consciousnesses. What we see, hear, taste, touch, smell, and the database, the storage of experiences. So actually it is neutral, but because it is so overwhelmed by, relies so heavily upon the information coming in from the other consciousnesses, that these things, these six, give the seventh its sense of identity. And that's why sometimes we're perplexed, the good I would do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, sometimes I do. And to shift from that habitual way of knowing things and habitual tendencies, we have to look right there at how each one is impinging upon that seventh consciousness. The eighth consciousness is called the ground consciousness. 
no matter what kind of sensory perception occurs, the, this underlying continuity of consciousness is there. The eighth ground consciousness is the basis, therefore, the platform, the, um, the ground of being for all other consciousnesses. Amongst the various consciousnesses, the mental consciousness is most important. The visual consciousness can see an image which may or may not be beautiful. The ear can hear something may or may not be pleasing. But it's the mental consciousness that decides if that other perception is beautiful or ugly, sweet-smelling or, or repugnant. It is... Uh, the liking of um, something that brings about joy or elation or attachment or emotional affliction. Meditation pacifies all sensations and experiences of conscious suffering, happiness, sadness, attachment, Version, and that's why we do it. We do it, and not only does it take care of those, that's why when you sit and you actually start to power down, and maybe we bring down some uh, notions about things we've seen or we've heard, and that's how it begins to pacify in the beginning. But then it grows and it begins to also pacify our uh, feelings about what we have seen or encountered. That's when we know we're making progress on the path. And it's when we're sitting, it's like sprinkling so much um, something into... Uh, pebbles into a pond, and they just gradually sink down to the bottom. So all of the images and impressions given by first the five gates, and when those are subdued, then the mental, the sixth gate, begins to occur. And that's when thought falls away. So I don't say try to uh, get into a deep meditation while you're driving down the street because you need to be paying attention to where you're driving. But I do sit and say that you need those times of sitting in meditation so that these momentary appearances have the opportunity to fall away. What for? What is the benefit, the purpose of them 
falling away. Everything that affects us in our life has been due to them. And when we get to the place that we are addressing that which is in the mind that has been put together and been decided this is what this is and when that thing causes us agitation, sitting allows even that to subside. And with a steady practice of that, we begin to develop an imperturbable mind regardless of what's happening. Not only an imperturbable mind, but when you have to undertake a task and people say, oh, it can't be done, if your mind can conceive it, you can bring it to pass. It is the reason why you don't share everything with everybody. Because some people don't have a like mind. Then you have to not only deal with your actual obstacles, you have to deal with the mental energy of people who are actually thinking against your success. So the meditation begins to do this for us. It helps us to see we are not those things. I am not my thoughts. I am not what I see. I am not what I hear. So then who or what am I? That's the question. And that's what we should continually going back to. Otherwise, we've never uprooted the ignorance of the view of the individual self. Now I know that when we hear something, and this is profound, and yet we want to be able to understand it in 45 minutes, or like I don't have time for that, or we just toss that aside. But we'll spend enormous amounts of time trying to comprehend something that has very little meaning in the whole scheme of things, except whether I want that purple blouse or the green one, you know. I buy them both, take them home, hang them up, put them on, see which things I can match up with it. And I finally decide, took me three days, then take the purple one back to the store. But if you're gonna give me some diamond, you better wrap it up in 30 minutes and don't give me a lecture. And so we come to become Experts in trivial things, never apprehending that which is lasting. So the Buddha said, my dharma, for the ordinary run-of-the-mill mind, is difficult to see. It's difficult to hear. So if you're easily offended, you won't be able to take it in. Because that seventh consciousness that is clinging to its view 
prevents it. But when you can say, oh, I see you, seventh consciousness, and you are not me, then you're at the doorway to accomplishing something that's rare in even a thousand years. So I often say, what are you looking for? And why are you here? We have to know the answer to that. And it takes time going inside to ponder that. The next question is, once you've decided what you're looking for and why you're here, it, was, it is, what will you give to get it? And if it's not much, that's exactly what you'll get. Not much. Meditation pacifies the sensations and the experiences of both suffering and happiness. Of attachment and aversion and whatever brings us joy and a sense of expansiveness. It goes beyond both of those extremes and that's what non-duality is. Non-duality is not a concept that you can really have a conversation about. It is an experience that must be realized. But when all sensations, all that connects us to the outer world has been pacified, then the mind becomes peaceful, and clear. And we can then rest in this clarity. It's a completely natural and true state of the mind. It's where we move beyond our thinking through a portal which is just ultimate wisdom. And when this state of wisdom is attained, all eight consciousnesses are transformed. I think I want to end here today so that you can have a chance to just ponder these things, not just to hear them. So go out to the website and listen again. Because Thursday, I'd like to talk about the transformed state, the five wisdoms. And these are causes within the practice of the path of Dharma that give rise to mirror-like wisdom, to the wisdom of equality, to discriminating wisdom, to all accomplishing wisdom and to Dhammadhatu wisdom. Hearing and contemplating the full range of wisdom teachings will cause 
a mirror-like wisdom to develop in one. Engaging in meditation with of helping all sentient beings without any partiality to friends or aversion to enemies will cause the wisdom of equality to arise. So equality cannot arise in one until there has been absolutely the uprooting of aversion to any enemies. That is still within the realm of the seven consciousnesses. The giving of uh, teachings and the sharing of wisdom with the motivation of love and compassion and a desire to help all sentient beings will cause discriminating wisdom to develop. I sat at my uh, desk this morning and I wept because I said I must not be a good teacher because they are not getting it. A week ago or two weeks ago, I would have said they're not good students because they're not getting it. But this morning, rather than trying to think of what's in your mind, I tried to look through my eight consciousnesses to see where there is a lacking in the wisdom to bring it across, to get it across in such a way, in the right increments, with the right taste, with the right coloring, that it can penetrate that it can open up, that it can release something. And the accomplishing of activities to benefit others is the cause for all accomplishing wisdom. I often sing that song, I'm able, more than able, to accomplish what concerns me today. I am able, more than able, to handle anything that comes my way. I am able, more than able, to do much more than I can even dream. I am able, more than able, to be just what I really want to be. It is washing the mind that way when the naysayers come. It's washing the mind this way, washing, W-A-S-H, the mind this way when, uh, Memories of my failures in the past emerges, washing the mind in this way. When you have to stand alone with something, it's washing the mind in this way. When you're feeling insignificant, uh, insecure, impotent. And realization of the true nature of phenomena that arises when all eight consciousnesses are transformed is the Dharma Dhatu wisdom or the uh, Dharma 
wisdom realm. And it is a place of abiding where we live continually so that whatever arises from the outside, we can recognize its illusory appearance. Not that it's not really happening, but we can recognize its illusory appearance and that we give it, give it its quality. We give it its character. We give it its nature. We give it its power. So next week, or next Dharma, I will be going into more in depth in the five uh, wisdoms if we can have a conversation around what are the eight consciousnesses. May you be well and happy and peaceful. May no harm come to you and no danger. May you always be able to meet with the inevitable difficulties of life. I don't know about you, but you know, when I review these things again and again, each time it goes a little bit deeper for me. I remember and it restores the joy that I had as a child, the wonder, the mystery of life. And to just learn something was so, uh, it was so great, it was so fantastic. But now to even think about there's something I need to learn as an adult, we like shut off in a way that life loses its charm loses its essence, loses its joy. So we try to just create and make things, mostly going out to eat every day, something like that, to just try to give us some happinesses. But I'll tell you, the greatest happiness will come in knowing oneself. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.